Hello and welcome to another episode of International History Now, a podcast exploring topical issues from a historical perspective. Today's issue will deal with Russia's war against Ukraine. We are your hosts, Dina Gusenova, I'm a historian based at the London School of Economics. And Georgi Anakopoulos, a historian based at City University of London. On the 24th of February this year, Russia turned its military actions against Ukraine, which were going on in Crimea and eastern Ukraine since 2014, into a full-blown total war. The language of the international media to describe the conflict is unstable. First, a Russian invasion, then Russian-Ukrainian war, then Russia's war in Ukraine, Russia's war against Ukraine, Ukraine's war against Russia-backed forces, or a fratricidal war. In Russia itself, Calling the war anything other than a mere special operation carries with it the risk of punishment with 10 years of prison colony. If there is a war, Russian officials say, it is with NATO and the US. Over 60 days later, what looked initially like a planned blitzkrieg has failed and morphed into a protracted war. Russia has been using tactics and weapons such as vacuum bombs previously deployed in the Russian intervention in Syria to back the return of the Assad regime. The interests of the 30 NATO member states with regards to this war are not fully aligned. Although there is indirect support, including arms supplies through third parties, the Ukrainian requests to close the airspace have not been granted. This situation has prompted the Russian leadership to argue that Russia is currently in a proxy war with NATO. As for the effects of the war, so far the balance sheet includes an estimated death toll of nearly 5,000 civilians and 12 million Ukrainian civilians who have fled abroad. Others remain internally displaced. In today's episode, we have two separate conversations on Russia's war in Ukraine. First, we speak with the photographer and writer Yevgenia Belarusiets. She's based in Kiev and she is the co-founder of Pro Story, a journal for literature, art and politics. And her works move at the intersection of art, literature, journalism and social activism. In the current war, she has become, in her own words, the hostage of her own war diary, as she remained in Kiev throughout the Russian attack. Now she is just back from the Venice Biennale, where she has worked with the Ukrainian pavilion. Now in Kiev, during, during the, the worst part of the, of the attacks, you still managed to produce work. Like, what were you after? What were you trying to capture? I was not understanding my 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 diary as a as a work of mine. I was actually, and I was not in a dialogue with the mainstream representations of the war, trying to do something different. When I was invited to write this diary, I saw it as a chance to understand what the war is actually doing with me. It was uh, the first uh, time in my life when I looked at myself as a, some kind of a material, of a source, not asking others what they feel or think, but making out of myself an object of research, typicalizing my, myself, because I thought that my reactions are not so much different from reaction of, reactions of other persons around me. I'm a good example of somebody who just, at that moment, was in the city and, and the war started. I mean, there, there's this question, how much is the world going to support Ukraine and in what form is it going to be to be able, as it were, or willing to support Ukraine? And, and there are different strategies of public argumentation, but most recently there's been this letter, for example, in Germany of famous um, 
intellectual figures of the both left and right who were sort of saying, let's, yeah, let's not support uh, the continuation of the war by offering more arms to Ukraine, but instead by not offering arms, let's help defuse the suffering somehow. I think that German letter you are speaking about is actually concentrated not on suffering of Ukrainian civilians, but on potential threat of a bigger war to European civilians. Ukrainian civilians are not in the middle of this letter. Again, these argumentations in this open letter you, you mentioned is much more cynical than it's just about we want to ha- we want to keep our small normal life as it was and we don't want to feel any threat from Russia because Russia is constantly actually verbally threatening the whole world with nuclear war so it, it, it is much more about self safety than about Ukrainian civilians for Russia Russia is fantasizing it is fighting with USA on Ukrainian territory or it is fighting with the whole Europe or with NATO. There are different fantasies that Russia is practically bringing into this war. And, 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 and the question is, if you are able, if human life is really so little war that you are able to make these fantasies real, to, to make it happen, to make people die, for some fantasy that is disconnected from reality. Russia devalues not only the lives of Russian soldiers who are killed in, but just thousands of them are killed in the machine of war. Thousands and thousands. We are speaking about 20,000 people who are already killed. Young Russian men. But also Ukrainian people who are just living in their villages, cities, civilians, of course, also soldiers. I was in Kyiv and Kyiv was under threat and it was a constant feeling that you actually can die in your home. There's been a lot of declarations, letters signed by various different actors. And one that struck me is the one letter by Ukrainian director Sergei Loznitsa, I may not pronounce the name well. So far as I understand Loznitsa's position is that he thinks he's being regarded as a, as a cosmopolitan figure within Ukrainian circles. And, and he's launched a criticism against both what he understands as an extreme version of Ukrainian nationalism and obviously the Russian aggression. I don't know if now is the time to be thinking about such positions, but I was just wondering if you have any thoughts on this broader theme of you know, artistic expression and positioning in an extremely polarized time. Extremely polarized time takes the energy from different colors in the middle of these polar points. And I think it's important to speak about these cases, each case, and discuss it. And also I think it's important to remain critical about what Ukraine can be and about Ukrainian society and different tendencies also maybe dark tendencies in Ukrainian society. So um, the case of Laznitsa, I, I didn't read it. And therefore, it's for me hard to comment it. it. It would be very strange if I would say anything about this case. But I, I think still that we need different voices and especially voices that are critical. Because 
in today's awful situation, it's very easy just to fall in the role of victim. And, and this role is actually destructive for us because it is not giving us the chance to build a complex democratic society with different visions and different readings of the situation and different voices. So I think it's much more responsible to remain critical. And therefore, I, I hope people like Leznitsa and people with different views will proceed working in Ukraine. And it is not important if they belong to, I don't know, union or not, because in war situation where everything is, as you said, so polarized, maybe it's easier just if you, if you are, yeah, j- just to fall out of some kind of union. But you can still proceed working and thinking in Ukraine. Art is not about belonging to some union, but just to proceed with your strategy, to proceed thinking, proceed working. In European capitals, we have Ukrainian flags in very different places across Europe, really. And I just was wondering if you have any thoughts about the visual politics of representing Ukraine. I think think in this moment, a lot of attention is just given to Ukraine as kind of a gesture of understanding and a gesture of being a part of, of Ukrainian situation. And in this moment, lots of images will, will, will be just easily transferred and to other countries, other communities. And there will be something like a easy done, patriotic, primitive propaganda, but also complex, interesting and critical, more, more difficult examples of the visual culture. And I think it's always also a question of another side, of, of this, uh, the side which is receiving images, which images this side will choose to represent Ukraine or to, to make it them as part of a big dialogue about what, what Ukraine might be. I, I think that it is a work in progress and in, in such an incredibly awful and hard situation, I think we will be overwhelmed with very primitive and very simple images. And this is also okay at that moment, I think. I I was never a big fan of Ukrainian flag or state symbols. But when I go through Berlin right now and see Ukrainian flags, I really feel happiness for the first time in my life. And I I never, I I was never connected to Ukrainian flag before this war. But at this moment where people are attacked only because they decided to create their own political reality and flag is a part, is a symbolic part of, of, of actually this political reality, I feel a strong connection to it. Today, today I was walking through one street in Berlin and suddenly I saw Ukrainian flag and I went under this flag and looked on the sky through this flag and suddenly felt just a big, big thankfulness to people who hang it out of their flat, of their balcony. And I I felt, yeah, I, I felt for a second happy. It's interesting. And I hope, I hope it will change again. And I think in, in a completely new world, where, when the war, this war will be a part of the history, a part of the big past, I will again be very 
maybe critical or skeptical about any big symbolical narratives. The history of Ukrainian sovereignty post-USSR goes back to 1991, the same year when Russia and Belarus also emerged as newly minted post-Soviet republics. In 1994, the Budapest Memorandum was signed, under which Ukraine gave up its nuclear weapons in exchange for the principle that all countries that signed the memorandum, including Russia, would respect each other's borders. Jump forward to the 2000s, Throughout this period, the Ukrainian political leadership remained fundamentally divided along pro-Russia or pro-EU lines. Things took a shift during the so-called Orange Revolution of 2004, leading to the election of the more pro-Western president, Viktor Yushchenko. In the subsequent election of 2010, Viktor Yanukovych was elected, who was considered more pro-Russian. But at the same time, we shouldn't forget that it was actually under Yanukovych that on the 30th of March 2012, the EU and Ukraine initiated an association agreement. The EU inserted a clause insisting on Ukraine maintaining principles of democracy and the rule of law. Throughout this period, Ukraine remained in a relationship of dependency from Russian gas on the one hand and exports to Russia on the other. So when Russia then introduced draconian customs regulations, effectively stopping Ukrainian imports, Yanukovych's government eventually stopped these accession proceedings. This, in turn, led in the winter of 2013-14 to Euromaidan, the mass protests over the conflicts around Ukraine's east-west alignment. And this culminated in a revolutionary situation. Hundreds of thousands of people, initially students, then wider circles of society, occupied Kiev's central square, the Maidan Nizalezhnosti, independent square, and key government buildings. There were clashes between police forces and protesters who had organized independent defense units. 100 protesters died as a result of violent interventions by police, who also lost over 10 men. Shortly afterwards, Yanukovych's government disintegrated and an interim government was formed. Last time we were in touch, it was in 2013. It was just after the, I suppose one could call it the victory of Euromaidan, and you were editing a literary magazine. Looking back at this time, have you thought about your former ideas about representing the story of maybe Ukrainian identity and, and how it has evolved in this, in, in, in this really decade of, of war conflicts and interventions? It was important for me uh, not to speak about identity and what is Ukrainian identity, but to speak about this a moment of revolutionary changing change of Ukrainian society, of society I belong to, uh, change that was done through a very hard work. I was, I was understanding the protest not something that is happening out of everyday life situation, but I... At that moment, I was constantly conceptualizing it and, and seeing it as a political work that had to be done by, by society. And I don't think that my vision has changed a lot. I don't think so. I think it's uh, very important, actually, really to see how much does it cost to change something. The price was very high that we paid and I think still, I think this incredible violence and shootings were absolutely unnecessary. And without these awful crimes, it's still 
would be um, a very hard, incredibly hard case of, of a protest because people for months stayed in, in, in cold, violent, unhuman conditions. They were holding to each other, they were trying to warm each other with solidarity, with support, but it was still inhuman. They lived in tents, in occupied state buildings where you, of course, you cannot shower there. Of course, you, you just basic needs and it lasts for days and people were beaten up, they were kidnapped. It was a lot of violence even without shootings, but shootings, when shootings happened, it was on top of um, everything else. It was like, it, it was a big question if the human life in that political system, if, if, you, if you will agree that it costs so little, that if you agree to that, I think it connects Maidan to this war because it is really a war between different political, of course, different political systems and, of course, this occupation of Ukraine and violent aggression. That that is connecting Maidan to this protest, the idea of what human life is, actually. The question, big question, asked on, on the territory of Russian Federation and, of course, again, because of Russian aggression, asked in Ukraine, in Ukrainian society, what is the life of human being? Uh, what it is it worth and how we can rethink the value of human life? But also the whole question that Russia aggression is asking the world and itself and us, how human life is connected to political strategy and political fantasy. Listening to the song Obimi by the Ukrainian band Akian Elze from Lviv, remixed by Dima Zago, originally from Kramatorsk, who is now forced to relocate to Kiev. Many thanks to all musicians for letting us have your music. So, Ukraine obtained a government which eventually did sign the EU agreement which pledged closer ties. And this agreement was signed later that year in 2014. Soon afterwards, Russia annexed Crimea. Also fighting continued around parts of eastern Ukraine, particularly Donetsk and Luhansk, which remained under separatist, pro-Russian separatist control. Meanwhile, the OSCE, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, mediated agreements in Minsk starting in 2014 to try to get the governments of Ukraine and Russia to meet with separatist leaders of the uh, Eastern Ukrainian uh, republics and to agree to a ceasefire. But instability remained and extended, in fact, to the Russian-backed separatist region of Transnistria. During this time, various political forces became stronger, including the extreme right in Ukraine. But overall, this extreme right got a very small proportion of the vote throughout this period, under 3%. And this was at a time when extreme right parties in Western Europe in some places were getting up to 25% of the vote. Let's not forget that it was during Yanukovych's rule and in Germany, during Merkel's chancellorship, 
that in 2011, the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline from Russia to Western Europe was agreed upon, which was completed 10 years later. It meant that gas from Russia could now bypass Ukraine entirely. And Germany was heavily criticized by politicians at the time, including Poland's Donald Tusk, as well as the US Republican Senator John McCain, who highlighted the implications for European dependence on Russia. Our second conversation is with Stefan Tröbst, a historian and a Slavicist who until recently was professor of East European cultural history at Leipzig University in Germany. He has published widely on the modern cultural, political and legal history of Eastern Europe. And we speak particularly about a book series called Visual Historical Cultures and about his work as a German member for missions of long duration for the OSCE, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, which covered the former Yugoslavia and the former USSR. Touching on the theme of visual representation, you know, blue and yellow Ukrainian flags around Europe in you know, cities and towns in the UK and elsewhere. I just wanted to ask you if you think that this moment of solidarity towards Ukraine, the idea that, you know, Kiev is where the heart of Europe is, is this a transitionary moment, something that will be forgotten in a couple of weeks? Or do you find there's more substance in this you know, new way of thinking about Ukraine in, in, in Europe? I think indeed it is a new way. First is this huge um, wave of predominantly female refugees with their children to quite a number of European countries. The second is sort of a mixture between finding suddenly out that there is a country called Ukraine, which can serve as a positive role model for Europe as such. And, and that combined with, a, with also with a sort of bad conscience in quite a number of, of European countries, among them EU countries, that this feeling that we, in quotation marks, didn't pay sufficient attention to what was going on in Ukraine, did, despite the fact that we had Yushchenko in 2004, and, and then the Maidan, and then occupation of Crimea, separatist people's republics, and so on and so forth. Quite a number of people, when they uh, look with hindsight at the development of the Ukraine during the last 20 years, there is a sort of perception that, oh my gosh, done something about it much earlier. Now there is a full-blown war but now we really have to do something. And that is, for example, the reason for, the, for this rift between, I would say, the majority of citizens in Germany and, and maybe not the current government, but the current chancellor and his social democratic party. On that point, Professor Troops, you recently co-signed um, an appeal 
signed by many, more than 100 experts in the German press on that, on the point you're just talking about, which is Germany's policy with regard to Russia and Ukraine. And, and that appeal, among other things, has this interesting line that says Germany's short-sighted egoism in Europe's joint effort to withstand Putin's aggression needs to stop. So I was wondering if you can expand a bit more on that, on you know, what is it that dissatisfies you with regard to the German policy over the Ukrainian question and Russia? Well, I th think there are two dimensions. One is that um, the Social Democratic Party, even the Social Democratic Party of today, um, uh, which is much younger than it was, let's say, 10 years ago. In the mainstream of this party, there are still these romantic views on how Willy Brandt um, contributed to the end of the Cold War by Ostpolitik and all this and that. Of course, um, uh, young members of the Social Democratic Party have no clue of contemporary history, what actually was going on in the 1960s and the 1970s between East and West Germany, between West Germany and the Soviet Union. But there still is this romantic view, we, in quotation marks, that is our Social Democratic Party, were able to bridge the rift between the two blocks, the West and, and the Eastern Bloc. And that ultimately led to the implosion of the Soviet Union and the revolution and the GDR and so on and so forth. Of course, that is a, an argument which doesn't hold um, when you confront it with the historical facts. The second thing is that um, indeed quite a number of prominent figures in the Social Democratic Party until very recently not only had extremely close contacts to the Russian Federation, but made a lot of money with it. Some of them former chancellor, as we saw in his interview with the New York Times and quite recently, still defends this position saying that for German foreign and security policy, the most important partner in this world is the Russian Federation. And that has been so, even in Soviet times, it has been so under Bismarck, probably Peter the Great, and, and so on and so forth. But one should not forget, by focusing on the Social Democrats, that the Christian Democrats, that the government of the last 60 years, um, was under a Christian Democratic Chancellor, Angela Merkel, who not in her rhetorics, but in her concrete political moves, was maybe not 100% on, on the line of the Social Democrats, but something like 95%. So I would say the elites of the two leading parties in Germany were with regard to Moscow on the same track. And so far, a sort of critical reassessment has not actually started, even in this extremely problematic field of supplies with natural gas and oil, which now turns out to be a, a fatal a fatal mistake, I would say even a mistake, which is extremely difficult to understand how professionals in politics and economy were able to commit such a mistake. 
you're well acquainted with the history, the culture of the region, and at the same time, you offer your expertise on the ground. So I wanted to push you a bit to reflect on, you know, how can one do both? Is there anything missing in this process? You know, how can a historian be engaged in a conflict, you know, on the ground as well? and use their knowledge, their expertise to make a positive effect? Difficult question. My experience is that in, for example, these um, missions of long durations of international organizations like, like OSC, historical expertise is not what is needed in the, in the first hand. It is more a sort of knowledge of regional culture, regional languages. I personally profited a lot from teamwork in these missions. Nowadays, missions of OSCE are hundreds of people. They are huge bureaucratical apparatuses. And in the 90s, that was quite different. So I always had colleagues from diplomacy from various countries. That was the principle of these missions, that member countries of OSCE should second on their own expense staff to these missions. Diplomats, military personnel, policemen, very rarely other professions. So in both missions where I was, of course, I was the only historian, the only scholar. All others had serious professions. So I, I was in, in the beginning usually um, looked upon as being an, a sort of exotic creature. But then very soon they realized, um, uh, okay, this guy at least knows something on the region where in which we are operating. So you had this experience initially with the OCE and the Macedonia and Transnistria, but uh, then you also became a leader, one could say, of different research strands. And one of them included the study of visual cultures in transition period, including post-Soviet transitions, how they manage various visual representations of their history. When I came to Leipzig University in 1999, I was asked to set up a research group um, dealing with two fields focusing on, on the eastern half of Europe. One is historical culture in German Geschichtskultur, and the other one um, was visual culture. Luckily, at that time, I was able to set up a group of four researchers, two art historians, two contemporary historians. We organized an international conference, which then was published as a collected volume. Also, we organized an extremely interesting, also very unusual exhibition of Ukrainian ex libris from late Soviet times to early Ukrainian independent times. And the interesting thing was that one could show that ideas like Ukrainian national identity did not pop pop out of nothing after 1991, but was present in this, of course, very exotic uh, medium. One of the reasons being that in the Soviet Union, you could not simply go to a publishing house or to a printer and tell them, please print this manuscript for me. But you needed permission by basically by authorities in in charge of censorship. Ex Libris were an exception. 
Just to clarify uh, for the listeners, ex libris are book plates, right, that you stick to show that the book belongs to you, to give the identity of the book's owner. And they're often designed in a way that somehow represents the identity of the owner. Ex libris were perceived as being something personal, not to be distributed in the public. So what people did, they asked friends or even professionals to design for them private ex libris. And then they went to a printing office and, and asked for 500, 1,000 copies of this small ex libris, which they then put into the books of their own private library. And we found out that in the Ukraine, there was a nationwide association of collectors of ex libris. And um, they smuggled something like 200 ex libris um, uh, from Ukraine to, to Leipzig. And can I just follow up? So this is a very good example in, in some ways of this, the way that academics approach case studies. Right? We all look for primary sources that capture some kind of idea. So in this case, this ex libris, as far as I understand, is a kind of um, symbol of, of Ukrainian resistance to kind of Soviet-era Russification policies. Is that right? Or the, yeah, that's that, right. Yeah. Uh, um, because the motives of these ex libris, more often than not, were um, um, motives of Cossack life, Ukrainian national musical instruments, portraits of figures of Ukrainian cultural, literature, history, Shevchenko, Gogol, and, and all those. Um, uh, also, some were slightly ironic about Soviet features. For example, I remember an ex libris which um, combined, um, uh, sort of speaking, poking fun at Soviet cruise missiles with an erotic background. So on the Ex Libris was a, a Soviet cruise missile um, uh, and uh, a young girl was sitting on the, on the cruise missile. How do you experience you know, the current visual representation of, of Ukrainian national identity? When I look at how the current war of Russia against Ukraine is visualized, um, uh, in international media. Nowadays, we see all these Western um, uh, journalists running around in Donbass filming like hell, whereas on the Russian side, almost no authentic footage on what is going on in the theater of war does exist. Obviously, in the initial phase of the war in, 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 in the northern region, north of Kiev and, and around Kharkiv, Russian, Russian soldiers confiscated mobile phones by Ukrainian civilians, and one could assume that they used them not only for, for making phone calls back to the Russian Federation to their relatives, which are intercepted um, uh, also in large numbers by the Ukrainian side, but most probably also they they took pictures, but we don't. They took pictures, but we don't know um, anything about these pictures. How do you view the prospects for peace? I'm not a military expert. I, I cannot make a forecast on um, how this 
how this war will end. Um, the most positive prospect would be a sort of palace revolt in the Kremlin, which then hopefully would would result in an armistice and ideally in a retreat of, of Russian troops from Ukrainian territory. I'm not in a position to judge the likelihood of, of this um, bright prospect from uh, diplomats, particularly U.S. diplomats. Um, during the last, last days, statements were issued that, yes, um, in military terms, Ukraine can win this war whatever that means and how long that would take i have no clue one also should not exclude completely that like other conflicts territorial ethnopolitical conflicts in in the former soviet realm that this war would lead to a situation of a frozen conflict which then would mean both um, sides would have with huge amounts of money and for a long time to employ troops on what are regular front lines, similar to the situation after 2014-15 um, in the Donbass, but in a much larger um, dimension that would be um, particularly fatal for Ukraine, but also for Russia, for Ukraine, because it would um, it would not allow sort of swift rebuilding of the country, of, of the industri industry infrastructure. It would keep um, uh, Ukraine in a sort of limbo, but also it would have extremely negative effects on, on Russia because this, what, what by the Kremlin was called um, the special military operation, then would not end with whatever defeat or victory, but it would go on for um, uh, for a time we cannot we cannot measure. So I'm moderately optimistic when it comes to military strength of the Ukraine, particularly now with um, with new supplies from the West. But we should not forget that this war, like many other wars, has several completely different dimensions. One is territorial war on the field and in the air with a sort of something like a front line. And the other one is this permanent um, uh, employment of of cruise missiles by by Russia, destroying not only military infrastructure, traffic infrastructure in Ukraine, but particularly um, civilian infrastructures, housing areas, residential areas, causing this huge wave of refugees within the country and and to neighboring countries. The 9th of May, a common day for Russians, Ukrainians and Belarusians to mark their Soviet victory against Nazi Germany, has come and gone. It was a date many feared would be used by Putin to escalate his war in Ukraine to a new level, if it is possible to imagine a further escalation. But Putin did not say much, and so the war continues along Ukraine's eastern front. Let's hear a bit more of that song by Akian Elzi. Remixed by Dima Zago. We thank our guests, Yevgenia Belarusitz and Stefan Trups, and thank you for listening to another episode of International History Now. <laughs>